He became regarded as a, as a good shot in a district where there were quite a few people who shot pretty well pretty often. Ian Duncan Ross Urquhart eased the car into gear and drove out onto the highway to face his destiny. He'd given him a drug that was used to accelerate puberty. I'm Andrew Rule, this is Life and Crimes. Today, we resume our serial version of my first book, Cuckoo, which is about the Medill Haywood murders in Shepparton in 1966 and the long pursuit of the killer, the man that we came to call Mr Stinky. At the end of the last episode, we mentioned that Ray, as we call him, revealed that he'd been adopted. Now, this was something that his young wife, Leslie, had not known, but clearly it weighed on his mind. And it turns out that he'd been adopted in 1944 during wartime. Uh, No one now alive knows who his natural parents were. He was brought up by an older couple, middle-aged couple, in the northeast of Victoria, where his father, Harold, was a bullying, extroverted, hard-drinking, womanising man. He was a farmer. He was a dealer in land and livestock and small businesses. His wife was a meek and humble woman who was domineered completely by her husband, Harold. It was a a strange mismatch of a marriage, probably a deeply unhappy one. And when it turned out that they could not have children naturally, they had adopted this one boy, the boy they called Ray. And Ray was brought up all around northeastern Victoria on different properties as his parents bought and sold properties and businesses. And he spent a lot of time in country areas in those districts. And in the book, I go into the details of all that, but I'm going to summarise it now just to bring up the most relevant points. One point is this, that Ray's adoptive mother was worried because he was a compulsive bedwetter right through his school years, right up until he was a young teenager. And she consulted a doctor in Wangaratta, an old doctor called Dr. Brown, who of course is long dead by now. And Dr. Brown later admitted that he had prescribed the wrong drug for the boy. He thought he was giving him something to treat bedwetting, but in fact, as he later admitted, he'd given him a drug that was used to accelerate puberty. Now, this is an interesting thing because the sort of crude hormonal drugs that may well have been used willy-nilly in the 1950s would probably be the sort of drugs that would be outlawed or banned a couple of decades later. We must remember that the 1950s was when the world was cursed with a an alleged wonder drug called thalidomide, which was handed out to pregnant women for morning sickness as if it was lollies. And of course, it caused thousands of children to be either born dead or with terrible, terrible deformities. It was during this time that young Ray was taken to this old country doctor in Wangaratta who manages to give him the wrong drug. We can't now work out what that drug would be, the one that was designed to accelerate puberty, 
but we can only imagine that it might have had a serious effect on an adolescent boy if it was given to him in the wrong dosages, if the dosages were, you know, much heavier than they were supposed to be. That's one thing about the bringing up of young Ray. The other one was that he was, as an only child, he was very spoiled and he got everything he really wanted except probably the right sort of direction and the right sort of love. You know, from a young age he was given better toys than the other kids and all that sort of thing. One of the things he was given as a 14-year-old was a brand-new Mossberg rifle, which his father, Harold, had bought at a sports store in Myrtleford in northeast Victoria. And young Ray, like many other teenagers in that time and place, grew up as quite a useful shot. He could shoot rabbits or kangaroos or foxes, snakes, and he did, and he became regarded as a, as a good shot in a district where there were quite a few people who shot pretty well pretty often. But his connection with shooting, and particularly with a Mossberg semi-automatic rifle, is very interesting. There's a third thing that comes out of the years that he grew up in the northeast, and that is that as a teenager, he got a local girl pregnant. And that girl it is said, uh, went to Melbourne and was delivered of a baby which was in turn adopted out. And so the adopted boy from the 1940s has fathered a child in the very early 60s who is in turn adopted out. Just to summarise what happens next, in 1960, 17-year-old Ray meets 16-year-old Leslie at Yarrawonga. She's a friendly girl, nice girl. She's easily impressed. He's got a you know, a brush back in the rocker style. He wears a leather jacket. He's sort of half good looking, half tough looking. Just the sort of uh, teenager that teenage girls in that time and that place would take a fancy to. The funny thing about Ray is that although Leslie initially quite likes him, her best friend, Shirley, takes an instant dislike to him. She says there's something about his eyes that she never liked and she never trusted him. It was interesting with him that a lot of men did not like him. Very few men liked Ray, but some women did like him and some took a dislike to him and and feared him. But it was an interesting mixture of reactions. They had in fact met just before Leslie turned 16. They become friendly enough by the day she does turn 16 in July 1961 that Ray comes over to where she lives with her parents and he brings two presents. One is a green twin suit in a parcel and the other turned up a few weeks later. She was pregnant. And that's the story of how Ray met Leslie and how they started their married life. Uh, She's pregnant, they get married uh, in a hurry and they go share farming around northeastern and central Victoria, which is what leads them to Gorn's share farm near Shepparton, which is where our story started. We'll press fast forward and we'll jump to February 1972. It is exactly six years since the Shepparton murders. 
the young man who was blamed wrongly for the murders, Ian Urquhart, by now is in his 20s. He's a qualified mechanic and engineer working on oil rigs off Singapore. He's making good money. He's put behind him the terrible thing that happened in Shepparton. On this morning of February the 11th, 1972, Ian has been ferried by helicopter to the mainland of Sumatra from the drilling rig where he'd worked for several months. From there, he's going to fly by airliner to Singapore. He's planning to take a quick trip home to Shepparton to see the family. After that, he's going to Canada on an all-expenses-paid trip to train for a promotion. Not bad for a bloke three days short of his 25th birthday. He's hoping that he's going to earn enough money to get married on and he knows who it is that he wants to marry. The first girl he'd really gone out with since Abina. He hadn't yet told his fiancée that he had once been the number one suspect for a double murder and that obviously he didn't do it but that he'd suffered many months of uh, interrogation and trial by innuendo. But on this day, February the 11th, 1972, the plane lands in Singapore. The sun-tanned Aussie, Ian Urquhart, and his Canadian friend stroll down the gangway like seasoned travellers, and they set off to find their luggage and then the car park. Ian's cream MG was in good order, the way he'd always kept cars. The difference was that now he could afford the sort of machine that he'd always wanted when he was 18. He'd come a long way in six years. His mate, the Canadian, settled into the passenger seat. The high-compression motor stuttered into life, roared and then dropped back to the sweet burble that made Ian happy. Ian Duncan Ross Urquhart eased the car into gear and drove out onto the highway to face his destiny. It was just on midnight. Next day, February the 12th, Heather Helsel, Ian's sister Heather, is playing tennis in Shepparton. When she gets home, she can tell something's wrong even before her husband tells her. His voice was carefully controlled. Come in and sit down, he said. I want to tell you, before he could finish, she was yelling, What's wrong? What is it? There'd been an accident, he said groping for words to soften the stark facts relayed by the police. It was a car accident in Singapore, just after midnight, near the airport. Ian and his Canadian mate, both killed. They buried Ian Urquhart on February the 17th, 1972. The mourners gathered in knots outside the Scots Presbyterian Church, where Abina Medill's funeral service had been held six years earlier. An old local policeman, a good friend of the family, called Bob Dowdle, sat in his car and watched, his mind drifting back to the last time he'd seen Ian. It had been the previous year, during Ian's last trip home. Each time the boy came back to Shepparton, he had made a point of coming to see Bob, but this time he had wanted more than the pleasure of seeing an old friend. He'd been anxious and wanted advice, so badly that he, he had waited for hours in the reception lounge of Dowdle's motel while the former policeman attended to urgent business. When they finally had a chance to speak privately, Ian had come straight to the point. 
He said he'd fallen in love with a girl in Singapore and he would like to ask her to marry him. But he was worried about whether he should tell her of the accusations levelled at him in Australia. Bob Dowdle had got straight to the point. You must tell her exactly what happened, he said. The truth, that you've been accused, you're the prime suspect, but that you are innocent. If she loves you, she will marry you. It was what Ian had wanted to hear. They'd shaken hands and parted, Bob Dowdle joking that the next time they met would be at Ian's wedding. And here it was, his funeral, he thought morosely, just when things were going so well for the boy. Dowdle's thoughts were broken by approaching footsteps. He looked up and stared hard at the well-dressed former detective walking towards him. He was a man called Peter Parkinson, and Bob Dowdle had never had any time for him when they'd worked together. Parkinson was one of several unwelcome faces at the funeral service. Not just detectives, but a local reporter called Laurie Sweet, who'd caused the Urquhart's a lot of grief. The retired detective stopped beside Dowdle's car. He bent down to speak. He oozed feigned friendliness, but there was no mistaking the triumph in his smile. Well, that bastard got his just desserts, he said. Bob Dowdle just shook his head in disgust. They couldn't even let the kid be buried in peace, he thought. One day, they might get it into their heads that he was innocent. Dead innocent. This week and every week, Life and Crimes is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. If you like the podcast and want to support it, go to heraldsun.com.au forward slash Andrew Rule and click on any article to begin. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.